calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. I think I'd rather be at peace yes. than happy. If we would go after happiness, not only is it not possible, but we're going after something that's inherently transient. That's the other thing. Peace is consistent. Peace is something that you can sit in. Hello, hello. I'm Evelyn, your host, and this is Repin. Thank you for joining me. My guest today is the first woman to be named Chief Meteorologist at ABC News. She also reports the nation's weather for Good Morning America, and she's the author of two best-selling books. You can find her crisscrossing the states, standing in the middle of floods, tornadoes, and disaster zones, bringing you not only the weather and explaining why it's happening, but also the human toll it's taken. Her experience and compassion are always on full display. With her first best-selling book, called Natural Disaster, she allowed readers to get a glimpse into her life, where she had dangerous relationships and struggled to forgive and learn to love oneself. But that only scratched the surface. With her powerful follow-up called A Little Closer to Home, she's at her most vulnerable. In it, she's sharing her troubled childhood, sexual assault, her eating disorder, crippling struggle with depression, abortion, two suicide attempts, and other painful life experiences. But rather than focusing on her pain, she's focusing on her healing process, tackling all of it with heart and hope. And she's using her experience to light the way for others so they can also overcome and see that it's possible to not only survive, but to thrive. I'm thrilled to have the incredible and inspiring Ginger Z. Ginger, thank you so much for making time because I know you're like crisscrossing around the country, sitting in tornadoes and storms while I'm sitting in my living room and having a glass of wine watching you do it. Um, so thank you so much for being here. How are you? You look wonderful. I'm 12. Yeah. Today is one of those days where I, I'm trying to practice everything I preach. It's Those are the most exciting days to me is not when I'm feeling great and then talking about being great, right? Is that the reminder of and the humility and humble part that comes with the not so great day. 
And I love to be able to do that genuinely and say to you, today's been frustrating and that I am not perfect at it and never will be, but I've made such progress that I can see it. I can recognize it, talk about it. And here I am, we get to talk together. And I know for a fact that this will not be a part of that frustration (laughs) and it will only help. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Well, I hope to live up to that and not frustrate you any further. (laughs) Um, But you know what? Being a human is really messy, isn't it? It is. And that's what it's a good reminder of. And and I keep going back to the thing where I don't want my goal of the day to be happy. Of course, I want to be happy several times throughout the day, but I also have to understand that I will be frustrated and angry. And I should want those because that means that I'm living and that means that I'm feeling. But now my new thing is always, I want to find peace with all of those, like all of the emotions, all of the parts. And then just some days are going to have more of the anger or frustration. Some days are going to have more of the happy, but every single piece should be in there. That's easier said than done, and I couldn't agree with you. Yes. But, you know, I think a lot of people are moving at the speed of light, just keep Mm. up with life, and that's understandable. But the other part of it, and I'll sort of own up to this, it's scary to look at sort of that and because you don't have the time to process it or to deal with it. And I want to go to your book because it's an incredible and powerful book. And in it, you share very candidly a lot of different traumatic and very painful experiences in your life. And I think everyone needs to read this book. But how do you muster up the whatever it is that you have inside you to look at those feelings and to deal with it and to be okay with being messy and frustrated and not know what to do with it? Yeah. I think the first part is knowing that I got here by doing it. And so that is what made me in the now. And I don't have to go through what I went through before if I address it now. I don't have to be working on something 20 years from now and writing a book about it so that I can process it. There are different ways people grieve and deal with trauma. I'm not saying that everybody has to immediately dive in to every type of trauma because that's not even realistic or possible and probably not that healthy. What I do think is important is to, as soon as you possibly can, get it out front give words to it, put words and and adjectives and verbs, and whether that's in writing or in talking to somebody else, that will only allow the process because we can't delete the trauma. We can't delete the frustration. We can't delete the grief, the anger. What we can do is own it and say, yep, that's there. And now what do I do with that? How do I process it to make it to the next place where I can yeah, maybe come to a, a ridgetop instead of a valley. <laughs> <laughs> Again, easier said than done, but yeah. I completely subscribe to the same thought. Now, your book, A Little Closer to Home, like, it's an incredibly important book. It made very difficult subjects to talk about palatable. Thank you. In the book, you have shared and have gone through so much stuff, so much tra- like literal trauma. Mm-hmm. And I will say that you have the brass balls to write all of it and share it so publicly because I would even feel uncomfortable sharing it with just close friends because there's a difference between sharing it publicly in a private situation and then it's a completely different story when you're sharing that so publicly and you have gone through so much. Can I ask you what you had to draw on because we're talking about like looking at your stuff and owning it, right? But when you're writing it and it's reflecting back at you Mm -hmm. and then you know you have to share it and put it out there. 
Can you talk a little bit about that process and what you had to kind of kind of hold on to to make it all happen? Yeah. I, writing, I always say, I don't know that people need to all be writing a book for the world to see their deepest, darkest secrets to heal. That's not a necessity. I don't think it would make for a very healthy life for anyone. However, to be able to be in this place, to have the financial ability and privilege that I have to get the type of therapy I have, I almost felt my responsibility because I survived and now I'm thriving that I shared this with the world in that I hope it's a reflection that they don't need to do what I've done here. They can, but to be able to bring it to somebody, first themselves, second to somebody that it would just start the conversation. Because in the Me Too movement, you see the power of people in mass shedding shame, taking shame away from a group of people, men and women who have been assaulted and raped since the beginning of time, and saying, hold on, that shame's in the wrong place. They have come before me and shown me how powerful that can be. For me to address situations just because I'm a public person and, you know, you might think that that has more weight or something, it doesn't. I wanted to prove that. I wanted to use this to prove that. My first book allowed me to see that because I was certainly more nervous going into the first one. The biggest thing I say is I checked myself into a mental hospital. And, you know, still to this day, the people will still kind of raise their eyebrows and be like, ooh, when you hear that, there is judgment. There is kind of, we don't know what to do with it because people aren't practiced at this. We don't know how to react. The beauty of what I was able to do then is get the proper diagnosis, go get the proper uh, you know, therapy that then led me to this place where I've worked through my diagnosis and I'm in this healthy place where I'm able to now bring these tools and again, the responsibility of telling my story so that others can do so themselves. So I think that's how I got through those. Now, when it comes to writing, it wasn't fun to go back. You know, this is not normal to talk about your rape and then reread it and reread it and rewrite it and reread it dozens of times. I wouldn't say that's normal. I do think it was pretty healthy, though. I also had to check with people who were in the surrounding vicinity so that I could corroborate parts of the story to make sure because we all tell ourselves stories. I told myself it didn't happen forever. So for me to go back and mine it up in the first place, I wanted to make sure that it was accurate. And we all have our own versions of our narrative. I wanted to make it the most true narrative it, it could be. And that was hard. Uh, let me just first echo your thoughts. It's not normal to <laughs> no. read it and reread it and no. write it and read it and go through it again. But I, I don't want to gloss over the fact that you're reaching for help and getting mental health and, and sort of putting voice to all of this. Mm. I couldn't support that more, but here's where I kind of will ask you. There is still such a a stratosphere leap in terms of mental health and the destigmatization that needs to be done. Mm-hmm. And I commend you for actually overcoming all of that and doing it. But you have gone through, let me just kind of break this down really quickly, like anorexia, sexual assault, rape, mm-hmm. um, depression, anxiety, abortion, so much stuff all at once. And I'll say, and I'm going to be presumptuous, and you please correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, is when you go through so much stuff, sometimes you don't even know where you are. I mean, you don't even have language to put to it. And you have to go to therapy at a time that's right for you. Yeah. So how were you able to actually make that connection? And what helped you overcome the stigmatization to reach out to a therapist? And also, you mentioned in your book, 
finding a therapist isn't easy. It's like going on a string of really bad dates sometimes. That frustration when you're in that sort of mental state, how are you able to sort of navigate all this to make sure that you still got the help you needed? I went to therapy from a very young age and went, you know, I would go for three to five weeks at a time. And then kind of like most people like, well, this isn't really helping or not. It's not working or I don't need it anymore. I always had some sort of excuse. I also went into almost every therapist with my representative on as if that was going on a first date. I wasn't telling them everything. I wasn't going to the deep, dark places that I was thinking about and seeing. And not to just blame myself, I do think that there are major holes in the system where after a young woman has a suicide attempt, I think the follow-up and follow-through is pretty weak in the current system and the way that we have it set up. And there is a lot of responsibility on the family may not understand or uh, what's going on, have no experience with doing so. And I think that there was a bunch of things that came together. But the first part was me being honest with myself and then being honest with this impartial person. I still was such a people pleaser that I wanted to please my therapist. Why? Right? But that's that's part of what what, what got me into a bad place. So it really wasn't until I had this glimmer of hope that I thought I can't have another attempt to take my life because I I knew there was a sliver of light that I saw this job that I had gotten. It was a dream job. But at the same time, I had that suicidal ideation, that repetitive negative thought. I couldn't get out of it. I was also in a horribly abusive relationship, which all kind of glommed together. And that was almost my moment of saying, the mental hospital, the time in a psych ward is, is keeping me safe from me. It's keeping me safe from him. And it was the first place where I went to a place where they gave me the proper diagnosis. I told them everything. And then I got amazing. I got this proper diagnosis. And it happened to be a great, it was Columbia. So thankfully, and again, in my privileged life, I got to go to a place that has the resources to give me that diagnosis. And then to give me a therapist who specializes in the type of therapy I needed, which was different than any therapy I'd had in the 10 therapists before. And I think that happens a lot. I'm trying to help my husband in the last year find a therapist and he calls it the Tinder. He's like, why is this like the Tinder? Because he's looking at people's pictures and their ages and bios. And it's like, what does that have to do with anything with how they're going to help you? (laughs) Exactly. I always ask my therapist, well, what's the best? And he's like, psychology.com is truly the best one because at least you get specialists of X, X, and X. But a lot of times people who, you know, my husband's in in the place where he can, he has the capacity to go look at that. In my darkest moments, you think I was going and leafing through a thing to see what insurance was? No. And it's like, if somebody is has a shattered leg, you don't say, hey, good luck getting to the hospital. Ooh, that looks like it hurts. We, <laughs> we pick them up and we get them there. And I think that's what needs to be on the outside of anybody who is in a healthy place mentally needs to know that if you come across this person with the shattered brain, you know, or a shattered environment or moment or what a trauma. Right. You have to help them get there. You got to you gotta leaf through the booklet. You got to play Tinder. You have to do this part. And then uh, even up to like holding their hand to the door. Here you go. I'm dropping you off again. And I'll be here for the accountability of going next week because there is no way you can get through this alone. I can't help you because I'm not a professional, but I'm a part of your team. And we all need caretakers. We all need advocates. Yes. But we also, I think, need professionals in some of the most serious situations or not. You know, I don't think my husband's at the point of taking his life. I know that. But I do think that we don't ever want it to get there. And so that's why it's so necessary to help people through this frustration until we can find a place, because that's my dream. 
I would love to be like the Betty Ford of mental health. She said, I'm going to raise awareness by saying I had drug and alcohol problems, but I'm also going to open a center that's like the McDonald's of drug and alcohol to make sure that it's branded so people know you go there. We know that name. We don't know Betty Ford as just a woman. We know it as drugs and alcohol, which is really powerful. And I think that would be something that, that we need societally to have the McDonald's of mental health. Yeah, it's really amazing that you branded that as a Tinder of psychology. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly what it is. It's like, swipe left, don't like this and photo. How, how are you knowing? <laughs> this isn't lit very well. And well, Why do they have a plant in their picture? Yeah. You're like, I'm suffering from depression. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like his hair. <laughs> you know, you're like, what the hell is going on? So yeah, the, the, the system is extremely, extremely flawed. And Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Here's the thing. You have gone through so much. This is a kind of a tough question, and forgive me. Was there one moment that you might want to share now that was a defining moment where you really started to turn things around within yourself through all of the stuff that Mm. you've gone through? Was there a moment where it really was a turning point for you? Can you share that moment? What happened? Where were you? What were you thinking? I was hiding under a table in a resort in New Mexico from my abusive boyfriend. And it was the middle of the night. And I had called my mom yet again, two years of doing this. And she was not just the support that she'd always been, but she turned to fear. And she said, I am really scared for your life. Please. I love you. Call the police. And I had never called the police except for just like an accident on the side of the road or something. Like I I have never called the police for something. This was real. And it felt too big. I thought, I don't, I don't need that. I was scared. And then I realized it's okay. And these people are here to help. And I am in a privileged place where in my life I have seen help from first responders and things. And I called the police. And they came, they heard what I had to say, and they took me in the front seat, right, to get me to a safe place away from him. And that was when I'm in riding in this cop car, cannot believe I'm in a cop car at three in the morning in the middle of the desert. And I'm thinking, I had already gotten this job, and I'm thinking, Diane Sawyer is not going to want a young woman who just got in a cop car to be on her program. That's not, I got to get it together for that. Right. I don't know who I am on the inside right now. I am broken beyond belief, but I better gel whatever is happening because it's not going to work anymore. I was lucky up to that point that I had stayed together in my career and I was about to fall apart. I was abusing alcohol terribly. I was, you know, not 
physically myself and certainly not mentally where I could be. And I knew I couldn't do the job that was right ahead of me. And that was a big turning point. And that's when I went to the hospital. So after I flew home and was safe from him, of course, I still unblocked him and, you know, still talked to him here and there. And (laughs) that took a while, but that's where the fusion of my identity began. It had already, people call it rock bottom. Mine was like, I always say it was like a fuse box where all of the, the stuff was out of the wall. It wasn't even that they were flipped. They were all out of the wall and they had to be mended from one to one to one. And now I've gotten them all mended and I know that I can turn them on and now I'm lighting up. I'm able to light up and I want people to have this same feeling because even if you don't have borderline personality disorder, even if you don't have identity fusion is something that every single person has to work on. And some people are better at regulating the emotions around that. Some people have been taught since they were in second grade. Others never heard of it until they were 40, which is me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, for people who haven't heard about identity fusion and why it's relevant to everyone, Mm. regardless of skin color or where you're from, can you just give us a quick breakdown and fill them in? Yeah. I saw a really great visualization of it once. It was a training at Disney. It was for diversity and training. And they had the core, like 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 a planet in the core of who we are and all these layers. Yep. And that outside layer is what most of us see. It's what most of us judge on. It's the immediate part, which is very human. It's not that it's wrong. It's this, It's just that they are training you to get to know a second layer below that and perhaps a third layer below that. Or if you're not going to get to know it, to understand that there are layers below that. It's very easy. Shrek said it too. He's a layered onion. <laughs> it's, not, it's not new, but the way that I visualized it and was able to see like, religion, skin color, like all these things on the outside that are the visual. And then the things you learn about people and you're like, yeah. And then the part, like even something as like mental health, like someone who now people know I am very publicly, you know, I had a diagnosis. I had this, I have this. Those are part of what people see as my identity now because I've allowed them in and I'm good and safe with that. But other people, as it gets closer to the core, it can be very vulnerable. On the other side, what we tell ourselves, if we were to go right down those layers of our core, it's very interesting to see how people see themselves. Yes. And there's a difference between the two. And we're all basing our judgments on whatever's immediately in front of us. That's just what we look like and what we have. Right. You know, that doesn't make us who we are. It's amazing where you were then versus where you are now. Yeah. So looking back at where you were at that point, How has that become a point of strength for you? Going from probably the lowest that you could potentially go, Mm -hmm. trying to take your life twice because of a totality of all of your, you know, terrible experiences Mm -hmm. that you have survived. Yeah. And thriving, really. And and there is a huge difference between just surviving and thriving. And I love that you sort of made that clear. Mm -hmm. But when you look back at your two failed, thank God, suicide attempts Mm -hmm. to now. How has that transformed into almost a, is it safe to say it's almost like a grounding force? Like, you know, all parts of you and how do you, how do you use it? I know many more parts of me and the difference is I want to get to know the rest versus where I used to look in a mirror and not see it or be so fearful of what I was seeing because I might just, uh, you know, uncover a truth or see something that was very difficult and imperfect. And I like to think about that because the words 
affirmation and gratitude get thrown around today in the most cliche ways. And there, but if I am to look back, those are the words. But it's also time. You know, time comes to mind, and that's what I like to tell other people. It is just like physical health. We cannot just get in sick shape and have a personal trainer for a year and then give up and expect our bodies to like look the same. That's not how it works. And our mental health, that is what I've learned even in the last three years is I think I might've had a bit of a, oh, I'll heal and then I'll be better. But like, that's that's not how it works either. You don't, it doesn't just heal. And then you stop learning how to train your brain. You have to constantly be in this journey. There are going to be days just like working out. You get to the point where all you have to do is maintain and you are in a better space and you know your habits have been formed, how to eat differently, how to care for your body and move your body when you're supposed to. The same thing is happening in my brain and that's exciting. And if I could go back you know, to that first year after being hospitalized and it felt like, it felt like I made great progress, but I was still broken. And I was like, how does this ever get better? I would just love to say to myself back then, like, oh my gosh, does it get better? It gets easier. But I want to warn you, it doesn't go away. You're not going to graduate from pain or, or, or trauma. It doesn't like erase, but you're going to learn such fantastic tools. And then the affirmation comes in. So even last weekend, my husband and I had a disagreement and my reaction was very much one that has been trained in a new habitual way. And my first line out the gate to my therapist this week was an affirmation of myself and the way that I handled an emotional regulation around something that would have been conflict and hurt and pain. And I would have really spiraled uh, 10 years ago. It took me a decade to get here, but what a win. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, seriously. And, and, and how grateful I am to have had, I keep going back to privilege, but it's because I've been, I've been really focused on finding how difficult it is for people to have more than five or 10 sessions in their insurance. And I have the ability to pay hundreds of dollars to see a really fantastic therapist specific to the type of therapy, helping my brother who does not have the money to do it, same thing. And I've been helping him and he can't afford it. Right. And a lot of people can't, that's, we got to change this. (laughs) How though? How? I think it's got to come down to the understanding part is huge. It's got to somehow in hospitals, I don't know that it's going to happen. That's the thing is I tell people go to the emergency room, which you should, because that is a safe place if you're in that extreme situation. But for that situation and anything under, we need that funnel place. We, and some, some general practitioners are trained to do it, but not all. And to get people to the funnel, to get that diagnosis, whether it takes one or five sessions with somebody, and then to be able to just say, okay, now you're going to go to the specialist for DBT therapy. Now you're going to go to the person who specializes in anxiety based on this type of PTSD. Now you're going to go over here because they're out there. We have these professionals. They're fantastic therapists all around the world. And now you and I are talking over a screen. We don't have to be in their hometown. So there's got to be a way, but now we have to make it financially viable because for the therapist, insurance is not paying them. Yes. They're getting like $15 if they do so, yes. you know? <laughs> and so something has to, something has to be looked at on the insurance side as critical. I think a lot of things need to be <laughs> looked at yeah. if you're asking me. Yeah. I mean, the, the unfortunate thing is the healthcare system is a business and mm-hmm. unfortunately it runs like that very flawed business. Yeah. But that's part two. When you come back, we'll yeah. do another episode. <laughs> yeah. When you talked about the layers of identity, it's interesting because as I was reading your book and being <laughs> being in the business, you were talking about chirons and lower thirds. And I was like, oh my God, that's such a great example. Mm-hmm. 
you were placing yourself in the labels that the world saw you in. Yeah. And I think we all place labels on ourselves and we have to, there's almost like a butting heads between how you see yourself and how the world sees you. Mm-hmm. And you there's a constant sort of negotiation between the two or mm-hmm. war, if you want to say it. Yeah. When you look back and you see all of these lower thirds that you gave yourself, <laughs> what's the lower third that you'd like to give yourself now? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's funny. because, And I'll make sure it's spell checked because yeah, there's always issues. There's always issues. Yeah. And, and mine, it would have to be a very big one. I'd have a lot. To, to add in there. But if I had to make it short, like my producers would want, then I, I would um, seeker of peace. And that would be going back to finding peace with all of it, right? It would have to be, there would have to be a little star to explain what I was doing because I'm not going to, you know, think that I'm the Dalai Lama. But <laughs> in a seeker, meaning that I will always be on this path, that, but that I'm accepting that I'm here and I want to help others as well, that that would have to be included in it. But I think about some of the lower thirds that I've given myself or that other people have given, it still bothers me. And it's one of my biggest things that I have to get over. And it's a funny story. My producer, who I travel with quite a bit now, Dan, him and I were in the car, some hurricane last fall. And I, throughout the morning, I mean, I was shooting off emails. I was on fire. I'm like, do, 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 text messages, phone calls. <laughs> After about three hours of extreme ginger uh, and list, he's just driving and listening. He goes, wow, that was just a lot. And I said, who else do I need to prove myself to today? And he's like, that's like my favorite line you've ever said. But that also means that I'm <laughs> trying to, to lower third myself over and over and over. And it, it's exhausting, right? It is. It is. And then I was thinking about this today because I just, some reel came up on Instagram that was a, an older interview with Leonardo DiCaprio. And they were talking about how does an 11 or 12 year old boy deal with the rejection that you got all the time in, you know, early in your career, probably not now. And he said something that no 11 or 12 year old, unless they're forced into it, would know how to do. And I feel like I've been forced into and know how to do now is to not. He knew he was going for these jobs, but they didn't define who he was. And he was able to learn that in middle school because of the job, because of acting. And thank goodness he had someone to teach him that. And but now I am closer to that place, even though I joke that I'm like, who do I have to prove myself to now? I'm aware of it and I'm aware of when I'm doing it and when I think that I'm attaching too much of who I am to what the result will be at the end of it. And that was such a great reminder, thanks Leo, of how lucky I am to be in this place. That's why I wrote a book telling everybody my secrets because I'm like, hey, they're my secret weapons. They are what I can come to the world with to say, let's make change. It's my responsibility to do that. And I'm in a safe place. There are just 5 billion times more people that are going to reply positively. And I know that. And there's going to be a bunch that are negative. And I love it all because that's how I formed my first beginnings of, I think, Twitter for helping me get my identity together first. Because if I listened to other people online, (laughs) I'd be crying in a corner still from 2008 on. (laughs) They gave me the ability to finally say, okay, thanks for your opinion. Um, I know that's not reality. I know that even when you're blowing up my skirt and making me feel like I'm the top of the world, that's not reality. That's not real. That's not in the core. And so it's been a long process of getting here. It goes well beyond a mean tweet, but it is finding the assurance in me 
And that's what I found. It doesn't work every single day, all day. There are times where it breaks down and I'm shooting off emails <laughs> trying to get what I want, but it displays differently and it comes from a different place now. And you're aware of it. And I'm aware of it. Yeah. Well, even though you may think that I'm blowing daisies <laughs> up your butt, I'm not. I don't, I don't not like it. I didn't say that. <laughs> no, I know that. <laughs> I know that. But yeah. what I'm saying to you is real. Yeah. Yeah. It is genuinely real. Like yeah. I'm not blowing any anything up anywhere or any Thank to you. anyone. Well, real people, real people, it's it's easier to gauge that. I do believe it. I hope you can sense that yes. I'm a real person. Yes. I would love to keep you all day. So sign us off. So will you let me know who you are and what you represent? Hmm. See, I guess that to me is like my lower third, isn't it? I mean, it's, you know, much more than what a lower third can say. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's what you currently embody right, right. right now. So Ginger, will you let me know who you are and what you represent? I'm Ginger Z and I represent the seeker of all feelings and peace with all feelings. Thank you to Ginger Z for her time, for sharing her voice, heart to help others. She is incredible and I know you're gonna wanna follow her. So I'll have her social media links in the episode description. To my listeners in the U.S. and around the world, thank you so much for your time and choice. I appreciate you. This show is made for you for many reasons, but one to hopefully inspire and empower you with truths and advice that could help you, and also to remind everyone how much good is out there. So help me pay it forward. Subscribe and share it. The world can use a little more positivity and love. And don't forget, leave a review wherever you're getting your pods. Next up is Reppin's first repeat guest from CW's Kung Fu. I am absolutely thrilled to have the talented, awesome Yvonne Chapman. A lot of times in this profession too, it's like the jobs that we're given are based on what they've seen before and it's not really necessarily an expansion of, but that's just something that we need to kind of fight against and say, okay, but I can do more than that. Hey everyone, this is Yvonne Chapman and I'm back on Reppin. Don't miss my conversation with Evelyn. So lucky and so excited. As always, I love hearing from you. So hit me up. Let me know how I'm doing. Ask me questions. And you can do that on Twitter at Reppin Podcast or check me out on Instagram at Reppin underscore podcast. To my head squad, Nelson Pinero, my technical director and musical composer. Thank you for all you do. And to my ride or die, Gracie Kong. Love and thanks for the blessing you are. Reppin is a Suburban Outlaw Productions. Until next time, stand up and represent. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues, and it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.